You know you're in trouble when you call the Disney 800 number in Orlando and they switch you to a concierge service. Oh, Mr. Suskind, so happy to hear from you. Hello, and welcome back to the On Assignment Podcast. I'm Abby Wright, here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. We're back for another semester at the J School and another season of On Assignment. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our funders at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. This is the 75th anniversary of the DuPont Awards, and we're going to be kicking off the celebration on January 25th with the DuPont Columbia Awards Ceremony here at Historic Low Library at Columbia, and we're going to tell you more about that later on in the show. For now, let's get to today's show. Our guests are the director and subject of the inspirational documentary, Life Animated. Yes, it's uh, been shortlisted for Oscars this year, so we're crossing our fingers for our guests, and um, it's been widely acclaimed throughout the whole past year, starting with a big prize at last year's Sundance Film Festival, and it got a resounding standing ovation. I think it made headlines after the screening at Sundance, at something like 15 minutes. It was crazy. Right, an effusive audience reception there. So Life Animated is about the life of Owen Suskind, who lives with autism and who learned to communicate and interpret the world through Disney animated films. Our guests are the filmmaker Roger Ross Williams, who's a return visitor, and Owen's father, Ron Suskind. Who I know his byline, right? Yeah, no, he's a celebrated author, Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a book by the same name in 2014, uh, and then Roger adapted it into this documentary film, and it's sort of a continuation of the book. So, um, by the way, Ron is also a Columbia alum, a journalism school alum. Which what a he, nice homecoming for him. Yeah, no, he referred to it several times in the course of the evening. It was really fun. So for those of us who have not seen the film, including myself, Lisa, tell us a little bit about the story. Okay, sure. So Owen is diagnosed with autism at about the age of three, and... He spends several years speaking in what his parents think is is largely gibberish, which is of course devastating for them, and they're learning to, you know, make a life for him. And then suddenly one day, they discover that the gibberish is dialogue from Disney animated films because he watches them over and over again, and he's memorized them word for word, and so uh, this becomes a way for his parents and his family to communicate with him and for him to communicate with the world. It's it's extraordinary. So the documentary then picks up with a look at his life today. It, it looks back, it tells his backstory, and then gives us a sense of what it's like for a young man who is about to go off on his own and really helps to illuminate the challenges of independence and autism. Right. So the the films are sort of a key that unlock this universe. Right. And it turns out this is not uncommon. So it broadens out to a, a bigger population, too. It's So the film uses both home movies of Owen when he was li- little or younger mm-hmm. and cuts of Disney animated films intercut together. So it sounds like a really unique style. Right. And there's also animation that was created specifically for the film mixed together because it, Owen is actually an artist in his own right and has created his own story called The Land of the Lost Sidekicks, which gets illustrated in part by him and and by outside animators. So it's really a very unusual way to put together this story. 
Looking forward to seeing it. Okay, what we're about to hear is a conversation between the director, Roger Ross Williams, and Ron Suskind, moderated by our own professor, Betsy West, here at Columbia Journalism School. This is from a Film Friday event back in December 2016, and it's an edited version of the conversation. Roger Ross Williams, Ron Suskind, thank you so much for joining us here tonight, and, and congratulations on this fabulous film. It's really fantastic. Uh, Life Animated premiered at Sundance, and Roger won the Best Director Award for the film. So um, let's, you know, I, I just have to ask it the cheesy, it's not the cheesy question, but everyone's going to want to know how, how is Owen doing and how has he reacted to this film? Yeah, and tell yeah. us. He's doing great. He's doing great. You know, that screening at Sundance was the moment where it was 900 people. And um, the screening ends, the lights come up. Roger goes to the stage and just says, ladies and gentlemen, Owen Suskind. On their feet. And then Walter bounced down behind him, of course. You know, the, the hero, Walter. And he goes, hey, buddy, take a bow. <laughs> now, of course, Owen's got a thousand bows in his head already. So he goes with the Prince Charming bow, the first bow. Of course, everyone knows that's the Prince Charming bow, so they go crazy again. And that's the beginning of a wave of joy yeah. that he's yeah. experienced. All across the country. All across the country. I mean, that's just repeated uh, dozens and dozens of times. I mean, one where he, where was that? No. 1,500 people, 1,700 people. Owen running down the, <laughs> Owen running down the aisle, high-fiving people as he takes the stage and telling, I love, he, 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 would always, he always says, I feel the love in this room. He knows how to work an audience. <laughs> so uh, going back to the making of the film, what was your approach at the beginning? Tell, tell, tell me about how you looked at this challenge of making the film. Yeah, well, um, you know, there's the book. You know, the book is on the past. So how do you make an interesting film? Because it would end up being just a bunch of people talking about the past. But then Ron would slowly start to tell me stuff. He's like, well, you know, Owen's graduating this year. And Owen is, um, you know, he's in love. And Owen is about, he's going to actually move into his own place and become, and I was like, that's it. This isn't, a, this isn't about the past. This is about the future. And I'm going to follow him for a year in his life. And we're going to flash back to moments about how he got there. Um, and so it was, it, for me, it was a sort of a coming of age story. Uh, and then the stakes were higher because Owen lives with autism. The last chapter of the book is, the, is Owen's story land the sidekick story and that to me was always screaming out to be animated because Owen drew the villains um, that sort of corresponded to the challenges he had in his life but it was really Owen's story and Owen's autobiography and and how did you how did you get the intimacy with Owen I mean it's one thing for his parents to say okay let's do this film but what about Owen I mean how do you do that Owen is a a perfect documentary subject because he lives in the land of the lost sidekicks. He's, he, he never looks at the camera. You know, the, the night he spends the night alone, um, Tom Bergman, our cinematographer, who was really, it was important to have one cinematographer who was always so with him. So you kept him. the same cameraman. Same cameraman. He's an the, amazing guy. I mean, and that bond that Roger essentially created or arranged between Tom and Owen was crucial to the movie working, because Tom was with Owen a lot, and it was often just the two of them. You know, Owen calls Tom one of his sidekicks and gives him sidekick identity, 
which is huge for Owen. That's like an honor. But, you know, he's not self-conscious in the ways we are. And he also lives in present tense in ways that, you know, the Dalai Lama does. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, he just lives in the, in the here and now. And so he, Owen, and you can only tell the truth. So as Roger often says, Owen occurs on the screen. You used, you used the uh, Interatron, right, to do the interviews. Can you explain that, explain to people what it is and, and why you did that? Yeah, yeah. so an Interatron is a, um, it's a, a camera invented by Earl Morris, to put it simply. It's, um, it's, a, it's basically a television screen, and I am on the screen, and there's a camera basically behind the screen. So, so Owen is speaking directly to the camera, but he's really talking to my image on a screen, and I'm in another room. Because Owen spent his life looking at a television screen. He was glued to the screen, and therefore he's glued to looking at you, the audience. And for two days, he came up with the most amazing um, sort of uh, profound things about his own life because he was just, he just would talk to me. And what I did was I had a little AB uh, switch, and I would switch and play his, take him through his life, play his all time greatest hits. Um, from and from Disney animated films, and he would interact with those clips. And so you you are in a sense inside that clip, in a sense inside his head, because the whole journey of the film is to get deeper and deeper and deeper into Owen's head until you're in, totally in there in the land of the lost sidekicks, and you're totally immersed in his world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. So you said that your wife saw the film for the first time at Sundance, but you're an executive producer on this film. What, what role did you play in the, in the making of the movie? Well, not Nothing. much, I wouldn't really, really let him anywhere near. Yeah, he saw a rough they, cut. I was, yeah. It was very clear that he, had to, he was a subject. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about it. Cornelia talked, Roger would talk to us, say, hey, what's up in Owen's life and what's happening, what's new, just like you'd report. And um, we'd say, okay, here's what we think may be happening. And, you know, something might be happening in a month or two, and you should make sure you don't miss this. It's a big event in no one's life. We do just what a subject does. The key was that we were kept away, you know, and we wanted to be away. You know, we understood it, both of us as journalists, that we would just need to put that hat away. And it's hard for Rob. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard for him to be a it's hard to be a subject if you're a journalist. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and we have to get you have to also give up control. Cornelia and I would talk about what I've been saying to subjects for 20 years. You just got to trust truth and trust me. And if you trust truth and tell me everything, everything, <laughs> then I can render you in full context. And if I can do that, you will reach off the page. And people will know the good enough reasons that underlie the things you do. And so on the receiving end, we're sort of like, okay. And it, also when Owen breaks up with Emily, we're like, oh, my God. You know, of course, we do what subjects do. Cornelia's like, oh, this is a disaster. And, of course, Roger's going, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Which I did a thousand times since I graduated from this place. Yes, yes. <laughs> How much of an impact has your discovery about Owen and his ability to relate to these characters and his, you know, how that passions worked? How much has that affected the autism world? I can say this as a reporter: uh, it's changing autism. 
It's changing the way people are seeing folks who are considered neurodiverse. We're all neurodiverse. And autism is now being seen more and more as differently abled rather than strictly disabled. And that's a huge change. And so it's changing research. There's a lot of research that emerges from the book and the movie at MIT, at Yale, at Harvard. This is justice for a world of Owens. So. All right, um, I'm gonna take some questions from the audience and I think we have a mic set up here. So if we have uh, questions here for Ron and Roger. Hi there, um, really great movie. Um, Thank you. It was amazing. I just had a question. You said that um, you switched cinematographers um, in the beginning of the project and I just wanted you to go a little more into that. What did you mean by wasn't a good fit and how did you go about finding the right fit? It was important that the cinematographer had a certain sensitivity and was good at, sh at shooting verite. Verite shooters are very, very special in that they can sort of feel the emotion in the room. They can sort of follow it. They, they almost know what's gonna happen next. And I wanted someone who had that emotional connection that also didn't shy away from emotion and that was especially needed when um, the breakup happened. Hi, it was a beautiful film. I wanted to ask you about the process of the animation and how you arrived at the style of it and how do you storyboard something like that when you've got all this sort of re real-time documentation footage and then how did you work with the animator to get those scenes working so well? That animation, the, the black and white line drawing animation, which um, um, I call the backstory animation. So we had you know, a wealth of home movies and, 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 and photos, but we wanted to I wanted to figure out sort of a, a, a device to tell the backstory that felt like it came from Owen's own hand because Owen would draw and I wanted it to be in that same style of Owen's sort of sketchbook drawing style. And, um, and, it, and it's, it's very sort of lightly animated so that it feels like Owen is drawing it and there's a, and there's a slight movement. Hi there, um, I am, uh, love the film by the way. Um, I have a lot of curiosity about uh, the role that Disney played in this, like your relationship with Disney, how the heck you got all that free footage, how you're able to splice it up, and then also how, how you're also able to like talk about Disney porn and then also show Disney in the same movie. Like, did Disney allow that? Were they aware that that would even be talked about? <laughs> the all-powerful um, Disney. As Roger's attorney, he can take no further comments on this. <laughs> no comments. <laughs> um, so it was a long process. Um, we licensed and paid for the footage. We didn't, um, they didn't give it to us for free. This is good for Disney, right? It's good for Disney, and you this know what? Not they did not. But they said, "We don't want this to be a love letter to Disney." They liked that Michelle Garcia Winter said, "You know, life is not a Disney film." They liked that. They didn't want it to be seen as Disney cures autism or Disney. I mean, they hadn't ever done this before. They had never given anyone permission to use so much of their um, intellectual property. But also, they haven't. 
um, let anyone redraw their characters. They, I had animators in France redrawing you know, their characters, and that was unheard of. They were, um, they didn't stand in our way. It was pretty, pretty amazing, but it did take a year of, you know, sort of working with them. The thing that's interesting as a reporter, all you reporters out here, is that Disney is a very self-protective company, in case you haven't heard. So, uh, you know, I have an agent, um, a guy named Andrew Wiley, and he's and when I did the book, I usually do Simon and Schuster, Random House of Publishers, and he's like, Ron, you've got a legal dilemma. I said, what's that? Every word Owen speaks is licensed by a multinational company in Burbank. I said, they can't license his speech. He, he's my child. Well, they can, actually. So after three lines of a lyric or a piece of dialogue, you were out of fair use and you're into copyright and licensing. So I had to go to a Disney publisher. Disney kept at arm's length. That was part of a dance whereby Disney did this thing in the book and the movie, which is they let someone other than of Disney, Owen, interpret them for the world. That's huge. Yes, the movie is a great film. Um, we were wondering what it's like to go with Owen on a trip to Disneyland or Disney World, and whether you considered <laughs> showing any of those scenes in the film. So when we first went to Disney World with Owen, um, he had very little speech. He was a little peanut. And we immediately noticed there was a change in him because, you know, he has all these movies in his head already. And suddenly he's walking in a brick and mortar version of what's in his head. So Owen was immediately sort of his function level, so to speak, went up. He was like telling us what to do. It was like we were there with like George Patton in the Magic Kingdom. We're going here, we're going there, we're going. And he was starting to grill characters because he's like a walking IMDb. We just love that. And so we, Cornelius would say he's more home there at home than in our, in our house. And so we went back a lot. You know you're in trouble when you call the Disney 800 number in Orlando and they switch you to a concierge service. Oh, Mr. Suskind, so happy to hear from you. So it was great. And, and a lot of kids, parents report, they often speak first words, Spectrum kids, at Disney World in the Magic Kingdom. So there are literally families who have moved to Orlando, Spectrum families, to be near Disney World. I know, it's wow. crazy. Because the kids just, they interpret the world through movies. That's what the autistic folks, they, they grab content from the wider world, all kinds of content. They use it as a code break or a map, a vessel, more than the rest of us. I mean, a little like poets and artists too, after all. But when they find their content, and Disney seems to be first among equals for lots of various reasons, so that, for, for someone, and Walt Disney back when, we heard this one of the animators, when he was first starting out with Snow White, the first animated movie in 1937, he said to the animators, I want the, the emotions to be so clear and the situations to be so, uh, so clear that you can understand everything with the sound off. And he was thinking of global markets in other languages. But for folks with auditory processing issues that are hypervisual, which is autism, you couldn't ask for anything better. So that's this amazing phenomenon of this bond between Disney and autism. Hello, 
know, you did a beautiful job bringing all the different components of reality and animation together. I was wondering uh, what is some one or some scenes that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie but were quite memorable and worthwhile sharing? Oh, yeah. So there's one great scene that Roger and the gang shot where Owen um, went to a lab at MIT. A guy named John Gabrielli is kind of a, a neuroscience king. Did this amazing experiment with Owen where uh, we, we lined up 30 clips from Disney, all Disney. 15 of them were sort of interesting, oh, by the way, scenes in Disney, but still Disney. And 15 of them were among like 200 of Owen's top 200. Okay. So, and then he went into the fMRI uh, to see what activations neurologically occur for each different group, the first and the second. So the first group, it's kind of like it would be you and me. The second group, though, of the 15 that he's brought enormous meaning to, I mean, it was like a light show. It was like fireworks. And Gabrielle was like, look at all that's happening. Many of these functions, people didn't even think autistic folks had. But it didn't make it into the movie. Just no, It was too science-y. There, there was a whole science line, storyline in the film. Um, and um, I decided that um, this was a, an emotional story and it went to take out all the science. It took the focus away from the, the family and the emotion. And that was such a right decision by Roger. It used to be this sort of journey to sort of get inside Owen's head, the audience is inside Owen's head, and then literally we go inside. I was like, literally, we're going to go into his brain. And then it was hard to let go. It was a Amazing. beautiful moment. It's stunning footage. They were in tears. They're watching the monitor in the room and Owen and the fMRI. And we had an eye camera. So the Disney clips are reflected in his eye and filmed from his eye. It was like unbelievable. Um, thank you so much for the film. I really loved it and it like touched me so much. These clips were they chosen specifically just to reflect the theme and reflect Owen's feelings, or were they like um, were they what like you know like authentic or genuine? Yeah, Th this is Owen's thing. You know, it's all as it happened. Owen is is a master. He's got hundreds of clips in his head, and he picks them from the Pantheon to match what he needs in his life. Um, how often would he watch the movies? How often would he not watch them? I mean, it was he was constantly and every chance he gets, you know, within reason he would gravitate for a long time to the movie. And interestingly, Walter at one point said to me when I was doing the book, he says, is it always going to be Disney? You know, is he going to move to other stuff? And I'm like, I don't know, buddy. It could always be Disney. What's interesting is that now he, Disney's still his foundation, but he's moved to live action. He, when he broke up with Emily about a year ago, he's in, the, in our kitchen in Cambridge, and we're like, how's it, how's it going? He's like, ah, oh, it's bad, it's bad. I said, what movies are you using? And he's like, well, actually, I'm using The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope it's not the Joker, you know? And I'm like, which one? What scene? He's like, well, there's a couple scenes, and he, and, but this one, and it's where uh, Alfred says to Bruce Wayne, and he oh, and does this, of course, flawlessly at the kitchen table, every voice. Why, sir, do we fall? And Bruce Wayne says, why? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. 
He's now finding his way in material that's working for, for the next steps and stages of what he will face. I mean, that's, that's a, yeah, so. Yeah, hi again. Um, I was wondering, um, how did Owen fare with Pixar movies? Because Pixar is more about inanimate figures um, talking, and I wonder if that spurred any new research, because I feel that maybe Owen's connection with the Disney movies is because they were characters and people and animals. These are just the best questions. We've been on the road a long time. These are literally the best questions we ever got. No one asked that question. And that's a an incredibly cogent question, because at the beginning, it was hand-drawn. And Owen became a hand-drawn animation fanatic for all the reasons that we know. You know, just the vividness of, of the emotions, the colors, and the way a character can, can grow. And he was not into the computer animated stuff. Uh, because, you know, with computer animation, you got a spine and shoulder blades. You can't just become joy or anger. And, um, but he has grown into an appreciation of Pixar, too. A lot of it is it's, it's got to work narratively. He loves Inside Out. I mean, and because it had so much in it, so much that was emotionally both available to him and applicable to so many parts of his life. I'm interested to know if Owen has watched a movie and what was his reaction watching it. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, if anything uh, didn't work in the movie for Owen, it was going to have to get taken out, basically. So Owen and I went down uh, to Motto Films in Brooklyn, where the producer, Julie Goldman, amazing producer, where Roger was and never was there. And we were in the, in the elevator back in the lobby of Motto. So we go up the elevator. When we get up to Motto, we're of course, they immediately realize that if Owen doesn't like the movie, there's no movie. It's like, that's it. And Owen can only tell the truth. So everyone was like literally jumping around like, I mean, the, ner the nervous tension in that room was off the charts. Yeah, I was a nervous wreck. And I was actually, they, were, they watched it alone in uh, my office. And I um, was peeping through the like, little keyhole and listening to the, up to the door. And um, Owen went, got, walked, ran out of the room and he, he uncharacteristically hugged me and said, I love it. It was amazing. <laughs> I particularly enjoy the film because when I first was learning English, I used to memorize Disney films. It, it, understanding your mood in a new language through films was really important for me. Oh, that's beautiful. I wanted to ask about his description of himself as a protector of um, sidekicks. Do you think he was siding more with the sidekicks through that role, or do you think he was positioning himself with them but also as a hero? This is the perfect last question because it's about, truly, because it's about Owen's evolution across the narrative arc that he himself constructed. You know, as Cornelia says, you know, The Land of the Lost Hikers was Owen writing little autobiographies of himself every day. And they evolved beautifully in the movie. And we say to Owen, Cornelia and I sat with him, it's all, this part's in the book, we're like, tell us about the sidekicks. He says, I'm a sidekick. I'm not a hero. But the sidekicks are important. They help the hero fulfill their destiny. Nothing happens without the sidekicks. And when Owen's about 14, Walter's about 17, Walter challenges him at one point. Because Owen wants traditional hand-drawn animation to come back. 
And Walt is like, look, buddy, it's not coming back. You're the only one who cares that much. He said it at the dinner table one night. Now, Cornelia was like, oh, Walter, don't say that to Owen. But, but Walter then challenges me. So look, if you want hand-drawn animation to come back, you've got to lead the charge. You know? I mean, you've been watching these movies with your little peanut. You got any movies in there? After a minute of silence, he says, I, I have one movie. Um, okay. Twelve sidekicks searching for a hero. And in their journey and in the obstacles they face, each finds the hero within themselves. <sighs> and it's a way Owen now moves into the world. So when we're at screenings and people say, how does it feel to be a celebrity? He says, I'm not a celebrity. I'm an artist being celebrated, which is just like <laughs> justice. So well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're just so honored to have you here, and uh, we're all sidekicks. Thank you. Thank you so much to Oscar-winning Roger Ross Williams and Pulitzer Prize-winning Rod Suskind for coming to the journalism school and getting our students so excited. It was a great energy in the room that night. So before we wrap up, we have two quick things to talk about. First of all, um, when we are not hosting this podcast, Lisa and I, as you may know, run the prizes department here at Columbia Journalism School, and we are gearing up for the 75th anniversary celebration of the DuPont Awards, which we're kicking off on January 25th. Lots in store. We have special tributes and honors in our ceremony, and they include uh, inveterate past winners, and that includes Christian Amanpour, who is flying in from London. This American Life. We're going to have Ira Glass with right, us, which right. is always fun to have him in the house. Right. And PBS's Bill Moyers, who himself has won two gold batons, which is fairly unusual. I don't even know the last time we gave out a gold baton. It's been a while. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Um, it's going to be a really interesting evening. We're also going to take a minute to pay tribute to our friend Gwen yeah. Eiffel, who passed away last year. We're so fortunate that Charlene Hunter Gall is going to join us to say a few words about the impact and legacy of Gwen's career. And our host this year, NBC's Lester Holt and CBS's Sunday morning host, Jane Pauley. Really excited to have right. both of them. And new this year for the first time in a really long time, we are going to be broadcasting the special award ceremony in the New York City area on Channel 25 NYC Life, the official channel of the city of New York. So that's going to be cool. It's going to air two days later on Friday, January 27th at 7 p.m. And then after that, we'll post the ceremony online at DuPont.org. So if you haven't already, go check out details on this year's winners and on the ceremony at DuPont.org. And coming up, once we've calmed down and taken a little break after the DuPont ceremony, we'll have a lot more great episodes of On Assignment for you. That's it for this episode of On Assignment, produced by Hava Gurari. Our music is by Dylan Nowak, and our sound engineer is the inestimable Shep Birkin. And let's not forget our fellows... Meg Dalton, Val Cabal, and Kim Flores, who help us keep our minds on straight. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and let us know what you think. And review us on iTunes and be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next time, everybody. Everybody.